I thought on a series on the Psalms, it would be appropriate to start with Psalm 1. So we're going to look at that Psalm to start. Um, Words are up on the screen there. Happy are those who do not follow the advice of the wicked, or take the path that sinners tread, or sit in the seat of scoffers. But their delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law they meditate day and night. They are like trees planted by streams of water, which yield their fruit in its season, and their leaves do not wither. In all that they do, they prosper. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Seems to me, Vicky, I might just get you to take that back to the first few verses as we uh, work through it. Seems to me there's something innate within human nature that likes to make boxes and then put things within those boxes. We like to organise, and I'm not just talking about tidying up with Maria Kondo. Have you ever watched that? It's a, a classic little show. Putting things away in drawers, creating order and peace in our lives. Uh, But we put things in boxes socially as well as physically, it seems to me. Somehow makes us feel more secure if we can categorise people. And so we come up with labels, don't we? Introvert, extrovert, sanguine, choleric, uh, blue collar, white collar. And there are lots of other labels that we use to put people into boxes. Now, there's a lot of debate these days about whether we should be doing that. On the one hand, some people say, no, it's wrong to use labels. It's unjust. It's unethical. Trying to squeeze a person into a mould. Because no one ever fits perfectly and, and we should be seeing people holistically, treating them with a little bit more respect than putting them into boxes allows. On the other hand, others would argue that trying to treat everyone alike, abolishing all categories is actually the unjust thing to do. It's not fair to treat everyone the same when we're all so obviously different. And creating social categories is one way that can contribute to our celebration of diversity. Social categories can help us understand the difference that we find in each other and begin to engage with that difference. So whether you're in favour of them or not, I want to make a controversial statement now and tell you that I believe God sees the world through a lens that involves social categories. In particular, there are two groupings through which he sees the human race, and they're found here in Psalm 1. They're not primarily male and female, nor wealthy or poor, nor even Jew or Gentile. The two groups that God sees as he looks at us, according to Psalm 1, are moral groupings. So let's see if we can put some shape around those groups as we work our way through the psalm. So Psalm 1 begins with a beatitude, 
Uh, blessed is the person or happy are those. Um, and it's happy not in a flippant sense, but happy with that deep sense of rightness and well-being. This is describing someone who is living well. And we discover with no great sense of surprise that the first secret to living well, according to someone, is to learn to say no. Happy is the person who does not, or who learns to say no, to walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit, sit in the seat of the mockers. Do you notice the way those phrases express a little more commitment and identification with something? It begins by describing walking in the counsel or in the advice of the wicked. All of us are surrounded by the advice of the wicked. We hear it every time we watch the TV or read a newspaper. Messages that tell us to indulge ourselves rather than serving others. Messages that tell us to satisfy our physical cravings, no matter what the cost might be to that. Messages that tell us there is no God and we should live accordingly. And these are often created quite intentionally. Now, there are good messages out there too. I'm not saying that. But so many of the messages that surround us are indeed godless. And this is the world that we live in, and there's nothing that we can do about that. But according to the psalm, there's nothing wrong with being in this environment. It's walking in the way of such counsel. It's following the advice of such counsel that is the problem. It's walking according to the values of the world around us that we need to be aware of. And of course, walking means taking one step after another in a particular direction. Each step often seems insignificant in itself. Only a short distance gets travelled when you walk step by step. Only a little movement is taken in a particular direction. A small adjustment in location that could easily be overlooked or excused. But walking is about taking one step after another after another, after another, after another, after another. And if we metaphorically walk in a particular direction, then we make one decision after another. Each decision might be quite small, but over time, of course, those small decisions add up to significant movement in a particular direction. Inevitably, when you walk in a particular way, you end up journeying with others who've chosen that same destination. And you find yourself in others' company. You end up standing with them shoulder to shoulder, toe to toe, and in the company of others on a common journey when you're really on the inside, having stood together with them. If you're part of the group, eventually you get to sit with them as well. I used to um, see this all the time at schools when I worked as a school chaplain. As students negotiated their groupings and their their associations, particularly at the beginning of a year. At first, the kids would sort of hang out near each other, but they'd stay mobile so that they could move away if things weren't going so well. And then when they felt more secure, they would stand together. But then when you're really part of the group, you could sit together as a group. You could sit at the lunch table. And so there's this sense of progression expressed in in this verse, a sense of someone moving further and further, in this case, into the company of those who are opposed to God. The message of the verse maybe could be summarised with that little cliché, bad company corrupts good character. 
Now, I know what some of you might be thinking. Hang on a minute. Didn't Jesus associate with sinners? Isn't our job as Christians to love people who walk in the ways that are described here? And the answer is absolutely yes. Jesus prayed that the Father would send us into the world, but that whilst we are in it, not to become a part of it. Jesus spent time with the sinners of this world, the prostitutes, the tax collectors, the outcasts, but he never once caught their badness. If anything, there was a reverse infection. He infected them with his goodness. Wouldn't it be great if you could just hang out with a whole lot of people who have coronavirus and instead of you catching the virus, they catch your health? Here's the test when you hang out with people whose lives are opposed to God. Do you become like them or do they become like you? In Jesus' case, his goodness rubbed off on them. And only when we are empowered by the same Holy Spirit who filled Jesus can we ever hope to be similarly influential. One of the differences between living in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Anyway, let's continue with the psalm. If you're not doing these things, walking in the counsel of the wicked or standing in the seat with, uh, standing with sinners, sitting in the seat of mockers, uh, then what are you doing? Well, the answer appears in verse 2. It says the happy or the, best, the blessed person, who's referred to in verse 1, their delight is in the law of the Lord. And of course, as the psalmist wrote this, he was referring to the Torah as the law of the Lord. The first five books of the Bible, that's all he would have known. Now, that's incredible. The first five books of the, 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 the law, I take delight in that. That includes Leviticus and Numbers. Fancy delighting, saying, I delight to read Leviticus and Numbers. It's like saying, I delight reading the phone book or the road rules. Of course, there was a time when I delighted in reading the phone book when I was looking for the phone number of a particular young woman I wanted to ask out. Or I delighted reading the road rules when I wanted to get my license. There is a place for these things. But the word delight is a challenging word. When you read the Bible... Is it more out of a sense of duty or are you delighting in what you're doing? Of course, it's true that everything is a duty before it becomes a delight, like playing the piano. I'm sure that for John, you know, there was a sense of having to practice uh, chords and scales as he learnt the guitar. Uh, But once he knew those, he could then take delight in creating and producing beautiful music that blessed others as well. And in the text, the psalmist says those who are blessed not only delight in the law of the Lord, but they meditate on it day and night. And that goes beyond, I think, just reading it. That's about engaging in it so deeply, entering into the text so deeply that the text enters into us. And maybe for you, that might involve journaling or reflecting or or somehow confronting the word with your questions and issues and allowing the word to confront you with its questions and issues as well. Entering into conversation with the text, meditating on it day and night. And at this point, the psalmist wanted to find a metaphor that described this person who took delight in God's law. And so as he looked down at the River Jordan from the dry Judean hills, he saw the perfect image 
The Jordan River winds its way through the barren countryside, a little bit like a green snake through the parched desert, a belt of life and growth. And he thought, of course, the blessed person is like a tree planted by streams of water because roots are constantly going deep on a source, um, drawing on that source of life-giving water through the moisture that seeps into the soil. So we might just move on to that uh, next slide. And the psalmist then goes on to say that someone who is grounded in God shows all the same signs of a tree planted by a river. They demonstrate productivity and perseverance and prosperity. They yield productivity because they yield fruit in season. What is it that marks a life connected to God? That life bears fruit. The fruit of the Spirit grows within us. But note its fruit in season. It's there when it's needed. See, the question is not, can I love others when I'm feeling good about myself and everybody else on Sunday morning when I'm sitting in church? The question is, can I show love when the idiot in the car in front of me suddenly swerves and nearly pushes me off the road? Is the fruit there? Is it growing in season? Perseverance is another quality, a capacity to make it through the difficult times. As others wither around you, you keep your colour. You don't wither. You won't be scorched by the sun or parched by the hot desert winds. Being grounded in God will add a dimension of consistency and perseverance to our lives. And prosperity. The text says whatever he does... In whatever they do, they prosper. This is true, I think, if we carefully define prosperity. Because prosperity doesn't mean that everything will always go well all the time. As far as God is concerned, someone can be in the middle of a failing business and still be prospering in relation to God. Job is the classic example. All physical circumstances indicated that Job was declining rather than prospering, but his resolute faithness in refusing to curse God meant that God was using his circumstances to refine Job. There was more going on than than met the eye. God was at work in ways other than the obvious. Though outwardly declining... Inwardly, he was encountering God, learning new things, growing in his soul and spirit. And so he was prospering. And it's a lovely picture, this picture that's sort of painted in the words of the psalm. A picture of productivity, perseverance and prosperity. But it stands in stark contrast to the wicked. Not so, not so the wicked, verse 4 says. And the psalmist now looks around for an image to describe the wicked. Perhaps it was harvest time when he wrote this and he saw the perfect analogy in the process of threshing grain. Large piles of harvested grain would be collected from the fields all around Israel and normally piled up at the geographically highest points in the countryside. 
The grain would be beaten to separate the husk from the kernel and then as the afternoon westerly winds blew in from the Mediterranean, the farmers would, on these high points where the wind was strongest, using pitching forks, toss the harvest up into the air so that the wind would separate the corn or the wheat from the chaff. See, every part of the crop uh, could be used except for the chaff. The stalk could be dried and turned into hay to feed the livestock. The kernel, of course, was used for human consumption. But the chaff was the leaves that surrounded the husk. And after harvest, as it dried, much of that chaff disintegrated and fell off. And tossing the harvest separated the light dry chaff, which the wind picked up and blew away because it was good for nothing. It was unable to be used, leaving the fruit of the harvest behind. Therefore, says the psalmist, the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. And a similar sort of separation is going to take place as God exercises his perfect justice based not on our partial knowledge, but on his complete knowledge. I'll say a bit more about that in a moment. But the psalmist uses this phrase right at the end, but the way of the wicked will perish. I had to replace a tyre on our trailer a couple of months ago. The tyre had a puncture in it, and when I took it to get it fixed, the very nice gentleman from Bob Jane took one look at my tyre and he said, your trailer sits out. It's not housed in the garage, is it? I said, no, that's right, it sits out. He said, it gets the afternoon sun, doesn't it? I said, yes, it does. And then he pointed to the tyre and he says, this tyre has perished And sure enough, as I looked at it, the rubber had hardened and it was cracked. He said, I'm sorry, but it's just no good. We'll have to replace that. The tire wall is weak and brittle. It can't be repaired. It can't be used. It wasn't that he had anything personally against my tire. He simply was observing that its condition meant it was no longer able to be used. And I think that when Psalm 1 refers to the way of the wicked perishing, it means a similar thing. It simply means that a godless way of life will harden people's hearts eventually to the point where they lose their capacity for usefulness or fruitfulness in contributing to God's agenda here on earth. And like a tire that's perished in the blistering Queensland sun, People sometimes reach a point where the only option becomes to place them to one side. It's a terribly sad picture, but vividly said in contrast to the way of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, it says in verse 6. You know, when American Indian boys undertook their rites of passage into manhood, one of the tests that they had to pass at quite a young age was to spend a period of time surviving by themselves out in the wilderness. They had to find food, they had to make shelter, they had to defend themselves all on their own. But what they never discovered until they reached adulthood was that as they undertook this lonely test, their father would be watching over them. He would stay a discreet distance away, they'd never spot him, he was always out of sight, but they would always be under his watchful and loving eye. The Lord watches over the way of the righteous. It's a lovely picture. So, can you see the two categories that I've been allude- that I alluded to at the beginning? 
the categories, the moral categories through which God looks at the human race. They are described quite plainly here, the way of the wicked and the way of the righteous. The book of Psalms opens with this very clear, quite bold, well-defined statement regarding moral categories. It's as though those who gathered the Psalms into their current shape are saying to us, here are two categories that you might find helpful as you read through the rest of this book, as you try to make sense of the poetry of Israel, as you think about and explore the meaning and purpose of life, as you try to understand who God is and how he works in the world. There is the way of the wicked and the way of the righteous. But of course, it's not just in the Psalms that we find these two categories because they're all the way through the scriptures. From the very first pages of Genesis, God distinguished between the offering of Cain and the offering of Abel. Right through the patriarchs, through the law of Moses, through the prophets, into the parables of Jesus where the distinction is perhaps described most vividly where there are sheep and goats, where there's a lost coin and a found coin, where there's a wise man who builds his house on the rock and a foolish man who builds his house on the sand, where there's a wide road that leads to destruction and a narrow road that leads to life, where there's, there's those who are blessed and those who are cursed in the simple expression of the Beatitudes. And this continues into the teaching of the apostles. Right through to the final pages of Revelation, these two groupings are consistently described for us. And a lot of people struggle with that. I know I struggle with that. I don't want to have to deal with these categories. Heavens above, wicked and righteous. How out of touch does that make me sound? I mean, why would God even talk about such black and white concepts in a world where there is, frankly, so much grey? It just seems so judgmental. And I don't want a judgmental God. I want a nice God. Of course, in saying I don't want a judgmental God, I'm really saying I don't want a just God. For judgment is simply the application of justice. And I don't actually know anybody on this planet who doesn't want there to be justice in this world. But part of the reason it seems difficult to use words like wicked and righteous, I think, are because we know we have so much trouble correctly applying those categories And God tells us not to judge one another. And he tells us that with good reason, because we so often get it wrong. I mean, I don't know the state of another person's heart. I don't know the motives behind a person's action or what pain might be driving them to act and speak in a particular way. But thankfully, God does. With complete knowledge, he is the only one who can fairly, justly, accurately and perfectly use these categories and make these distinctions. And the other thing to say, of course, is that whilst it's true that the Bible discourages us from, at a human level, applying these categories to each other, it does invite us to apply these categories to ourselves, to take the log out of our own eye, to be physicians who diagnose our own souls and to search our own hearts to see what's there. Because if we're really honest, I suspect that to some degree, all of us know the way of the wicked. We've all listened to the advice of those who are opposed to God and responded to that. At least I know that I have. 
That's the way that leads to perished dreams and hardened hearts and cracked relationships. And the only way we can find life is to change roads, to walk a different way. We need to get off the, the way of the wicked and onto the way of the righteous. And you know which way that is, don't you? Jesus said, I am the way. I am the way. And if you want to walk in God's righteous way, then you need to follow Jesus. See, if I'm going to walk in the way of the righteous, the last thing I need is a bunch of rules to follow. That will just make me self-righteous. And that's a terrible place to be. What I need is someone to be my guide. Someone who offers me a clean slate and a fresh start through the cross. Someone who will live within and empower me by his spirit, inclining my heart towards that which is productive and persistent and prosperous. Moving and motivating me to live into the fullness of life that Jesus dragged into this broken world through the resurrection. You see, no one can really walk in the way of the righteous apart from Jesus Christ. For in God's sight, as it says in 1 Corinthians 1.30, He is our righteousness. And we can only find that way. We can only live in that way when we find ourselves in Him. Let's pray. God, please give us the courage this morning to allow ourselves to be confronted by your word. Lord, wicked and righteous are words we don't normally like to use, but this morning we just want to sit for a moment and allow your light to shine into our hearts to show us what you see when you look within us. Lord, we confess that There are times when we have followed the advice of the wicked, when we've walked in the path of those around us who shun your word and your ways. And despite the loss and the waste that that creates for us, I'm sorry, God, but we still find ourselves attracted to that in some some strange way. Lord, please break into our lives a new and a fresh Jesus, be the way for us. Help us to follow you. Empower us by your spirit. Incline us to obey, not out of a sense of resistant duty, but out of the realization of your overwhelmingly great and determined love for us. Happiness, Jesus, is found in you. Blessing is found in you. You are the source of every good thing. You are the font of every blessing. We thank you for that. Pray that you would help us today, God, to walk in your way. Amen.